Cool. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get going. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Um, Jesus, just as, uh, as Zach and I always pray, and Dane and Zach and I always pray, just make tonight your night. It always is. We just pray that it would be your night um, in our hearts, that we would see that this is your night, that this is, uh, this is your ministry, this is your church. We are your people. And so just behind, lift it up. We pray that, um, I just pray that we would see, though we can't understand it fully, that we would know truly um, the weight of your glory. Um, God, you're good. And we know the enemy is sick. And so I just pray that those two truths would be impressed upon our heart tonight, even as we go into this Christmas season and take a look at this miracle um, of God come to man as God become Man, I just pray that tonight that this study would resonate in the hearts of your people, that we would be encouraged, um, that we would be emboldened, um, that we serve the one true living King. And so Jesus, have your way with us tonight. Holy Spirit, I ask for your power to teach. I ask that you would uh, enable those that are here to learn, ultimately to your glory, not our own. And so make Jesus high and lifted up. We exist to glorify Jesus and to make his glory known. And so I pray that you would do that tonight in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're new, and a lot of you are, we're in a study, a curious study called Jesus and Demons. Why would we do that? Well, because Jesus encountered demons more than anyone else. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. And two studies ago, we took a look at the early part of the church. We took a look at the first century church. We did a study through a portion of Acts. And we took a look at not just doing church anymore. And Zach and I have really pushed on, on, on the congregation Sunday nights and ourselves to not just do church anymore, but to actually become the church. It's a transformative understanding of your relationship. That we don't just do church, we just don't compartmentalize church, you can't compartmentalize church, but that we actually become the church. And then our last series, Zach took a look at Church on Fire, a church that's baptized with the Holy Spirit as Jesus himself was baptized with the Holy Spirit and empowered for mission. So too shall the church yesterday, today, tomorrow be baptized with the Holy Spirit and put on mission. But we took a look the very first week of this study. We took a look in Luke 4, where we see that Jesus is baptized by the Holy Spirit, goes out onto mission as the church should be baptized with the Holy Spirit, move out onto mission, and who shows up? Satan. Immediately. Because when you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you are now engaged in spiritual warfare. And you could say, no, I'm not. I didn't ask if you were, I said you are. The Bible doesn't say, hey, if you want to be engaged in spiritual warfare, sign up here. It says you are. Just same with husbands and, and being the head of your marriage. The Bible doesn't say you can be the head of your marriage. It says you are the head. The only question is whether or not you're a good head in your marriage. And so if you are a Christian, if you've been gripped by the Holy Spirit, if you've been gripped by the gospel, you don't get to choose whether or not to be in spiritual warfare. You are. And it's my job as a pastor to equip you for it. And one of the things that we saw early on is that we saw that Jesus' ministry did not end when he ascended to heaven. It says that in the beginning of Acts. It says the things that Jesus began to say and do, began. This is at the end of his ministry. It says, look, it's just begun. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And what happens in Acts is that Jesus' ministry does not end. It transfers. And so we run around like we don't know what the game plan is. The game plan is reflecting Jesus to a world. And it sounds like bumper sticker theology, but it's true. It's true that the Holy Spirit says, look, you call upon me. We're going to continue Jesus's ministry. People are like, what's the point of the church? To continue Jesus's ministry. Amen. It's to actually the church's legit, literal, spiritual mission is to reflect the ministry of Jesus. That's why we study Jesus. That's why I'm glad the whole Bible is about Jesus. And so when you understand that, that Jesus' ministry did not end, it simply was transferred to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you see that when Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he came under spiritual warfare. He was attacked by Satan and demons. And we took a look at that. Satan showed up first and levied three temptations against Jesus. And what did he do? I love it. Jesus is so gangster, he just throws Bible at him, right? Just starts quoting Deuteronomy. And he does it again tonight. Jesus loved the book of Deuteronomy. You're like, really? He went with that one? Right? Jesus just starts lobbing Bible at him, right? Satan knows the Bible, by the way. Definitely knows the Bible. Demons know the Bible. They know the Bible. And so Satan shows up, tempts him three times. Then we saw just a few verses later, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue and there's a man that's possessed by a demon. 
The demon throws the guy forward even. We took a look at the history of demons. We took a look at where they come from. We know that one of the angels, when God created everything, he created a spiritual realm and a physical realm. And in the spiritual realm, he created angels. And in the physical realm, he created humans. And one of those angels thought so highly of himself, it says in Isaiah 14, 14, that he said, I will ascend above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. Look, I'm going to answer to myself from now on. Sound like anyone you know? Sound like you? Today, yesterday, still? I'll answer to myself. I don't like the word authority. I will be my own authority. Satan said the same thing. Got him kicked out of heaven, went down to the garden, went to Adam and Eve, said, look, you know, God said this, but eh, really, did he? Come on, come on, come on. You could be like God. You could know good and evil. Eat of it. Fed them the same lie. So what got Satan kicked out of heaven got us kicked out of the garden and sin enters the world. And so we see that demons are fallen angels, magnificent creatures, but created. Wise, strong, holy creatures, but created. At times, the messenger of God's judgment, but created, not God. And so we saw that in our first study that Jesus was tempted and that he cast out a demon from a man. And then last week, we took a look at Jesus restoring a demoniac. And if you weren't here last week, it's one of those just crazy stories that when you guys say the Bible's boring, I have no idea which Bible you're reading, okay? The disciples come from the other side of the lake to see a Galilee. They come through a storm. Jesus is racked out, sleeping. He was serious about naps, okay? Sleeping in the boat. They're getting pounded with waves. They're taking on water. The wind, which still to this day causes abrupt storms in the Sea of Galilee, based on how low it is and the desert plains. This stuff still happens today. I've been there. We see that the disciples freak out. We're going to die. Jesus gets up and says, stop. Just stop. I'm napping. And he calms everything. He calms physical creation because he is creator God. And then they get to the other side because Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And the disciples should have known that that was a promise. God's not like, let's go to the other side if we make it. So you're in a trial right now and God says, let's get to the other side. You're like, I don't know if we'll make it. And Jesus says, stop. Stop, you will. And so we see that they come to the other side after they've been rowing for hours, five, six miles across that. It's like a CrossFit workout. They finally get to shore. And then a naked demoniac that lives in the cemetery charges at Jesus. Again, I don't know what boring Bible you're reading. So naked guy comes running from the cemetery with shackles because he's been breaking chains. He's been cutting himself with stone. He's bloody. He's dirty. He's got long hair. Luke said he had been there a long time. Luke is a doctor. He's concerned for this man's health. Says he's been living there a long time. So strong. They would send all the men up there to bind him and chain him. And he would just stand up and break the chains because demons are powerful. But as we saw, as powerful as that demon was, as much as he had his way with that guy, Nothing could stop that man from getting to Jesus. Nothing in your life can stop you from getting to Jesus. No affliction, no torment, no amount of shame, no amount of history, no amount of sexual impropriety, no amount of sin in your life can stop you from getting to Jesus. And we do that. We set up that barrier. Say, well, I got to figure a few things out. Then I'm going to come talk to Jesus about it. Now you get to Jesus first and then he restores you from that which you thought hindered you from getting to him. And so we don't build up these things. Even a demon could not keep this man from running to the feet of Jesus. And so I implored us last week to just get to Jesus immediately. Right away, get to Jesus. Let him restore you of that, but don't build up your sin. Don't build up the spiritual realm. Demons even, as powerful as they are, don't build them up as a hurdle to Jesus. God says, no way, you're my creation. You always have access to me. And so we took a look at that. Last week, that's why you should have come last week, but you didn't. But okay, so you're here, so let's party. And so Luke 9, we're in Luke 9. And we're going to take a look at two parts. This is what God moved in me. I was getting ready to just look at the verse, just take a look at the section where, guess what? A boy is afflicted with a demon. But as I read over context and as I've read in between the chapters that we've been studying, I could not help but start at verse 28. 
I could not help but start at verse 28. Because again, keep in mind, as I've said this every week, this is not primarily a study about demons. This is primarily a study about Jesus' authority over all creation. That Jesus would be high and lifted up preeminent is the goal of this study and every study. If you haven't noticed, Zach and I say Jesus a lot. And it's not in vain. It's because he's on our heart a lot. It's because he is all over the Bible. Everywhere, every single thing in the Bible leads up to, describes, or looks back to Jesus. Everything. And so that Jesus would be high and lifted up. And so as I was looking through this chapter, and there's this little chunk with the demon, I could not help but start with the transfiguration. I could not help. And so it says this. It says, now it came to pass, this is verse 28, about eight days later, and Jesus had just got done predicting his death and resurrection yet again. He had just got done explaining to the disciples, look, I'm headed to the cross. And that's a little demoralizing, right? Yeah. If you're the disciples, like, like, and keep in mind, the Jewish mindset thought that Messiah was going to come and free them from the political grasp of Rome. It hasn't happened yet. Like, well, what's going on? Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go die. And so you can imagine there's a little bit of disarray and the disciples throughout his whole ministry just continue to struggle with the actual manifestation of the Messiah. Because we have our own expectations of Jesus. Jesus says, I have my mission to accomplish despite your expectations. And so he just got done teaching them about the cross, that he was going there and to follow him spiritually. And it says, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. He took Peter, John, and James. And some people, and, and it's true, these guys are like the inner circle. Okay, everyone's like, these are the guys that he really trusted. I'm somewhere in the middle. Maybe these are the guys most likely to get in trouble. So he's like, you three with me. The rest of you are fine. You stay at the bottom. Okay, I don't have to worry about you as much. You three with me. Come here, right? And, it says, and, I, and I talked about this last week. And they went up on a mountain to pray. Did you notice that Jesus had like cardio on point? Did you ever notice that? Like Jesus just loved to scamper up mountains, right? Like Bible study, bony, let's roll. <laughs> up the mountain. And we just blaze right, but no, they walked up this mountain. Jesus says, look, I have something to show you. And he brings three. And he brings his inner circle in. And it says, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And the words translated denote this idea that it was like flashes of lightning. Anyone been in a legit lightning storm? Legit. If, you, if you're thinking of one in California, we don't have them legit out here. Okay, right? <clears throat> we don't. Okay? Legit, we, not to belittle the people. So you're like, I'm never, I'm never leaving California. I'll never, right? Just look. In fact, I shouldn't even say that because when we were over at uh, Micah's um, bachelor weekend, um, we were up at a lake. What lake was it? Micah? Isabella. I should know that, but I'm not from here, so I don't have everything memorized yet. We were up at Lake Isabella, and there was an epic electrical storm. In fact, we had a lightning. How, how far was the one that struck? What did we gauge? 150 yards? 100 yards, 150 yards, okay? Like, people's teeth hurt after this one struck, right? Like, Tim, his boss, like, his jaw, like, fillings were shook. I mean, legit lightning. Who's seen that? legit lightning and you're just awestruck. That's what he says Jesus's robe was like, that he stretched out. Now, because you see what's happening here is that the creator God is beginning to stretch out. Creator God that's allowed himself to be incarnate, to be made flesh, is about to stretch himself out for a moment in front of three disciples. And so it's like flashes of lightning and what's going on here is that we're beginning to see what's going to happen is that God is going to put, for a brief moment, he's going to put on display his glory. And the concept of glory, depending on how you count it, is spoken of some 300 times in the Bible. And this is something that we can never know fully, but we can know truly. Do you get that? We don't like that. We, want to under, we, we think we want to and can understand everything fully in order before we actually submit ourselves to it. Look, there are certain things, and the Bible uses language like this. It says what you see in part, what you know in part in this life, 
will be made known when you see him face to face and you know him as he is known. So the Bible says, look, there are certain things that though you can know it is true, you will not know it fully until all things are completed in Jesus. And so even as we begin to just very into a cursory study of Jesus's and God, God's glory, just know that this is but scratching the surface. And the Bible speaks of God's glory some 300 times. And we're talking about an attribute of God, which is tough to comprehend because we have finite minds and we have limited human understanding and language. There are things that we've just simply attempted to put into human language that cannot be described. Even when you read through some of the, the imagery in the Bible and Revelation, it's, it's John, you know, Revelation is John trying to describe what he sees. Though we know that's, that's limited by his ability to convey it, though perfect, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's the human understanding, the human language equivalent of something that's indescribable. And what these disciples are about to see is something indescribable as Jesus who created all things by whom all things were created through all things were created is about to, for a brief moment, put on display this glory. And as an attribute of God, we see the Bible use lots of great language. So I've got a list here. The glory of God is referring to his splendor, his beauty, his magnificence, his radiance, his heaviness, his weightiness, his prominence, his preeminence, his luminescence, his majesty, his holiness, his purity, his worthiness, his superiority. And this is what's about to be displayed before these three disciples as Jesus stretches out and we see this, that occasionally the glory of God is revealed to the people of God. Occasionally. And it generally manifests itself in two ways. Do you know which the ways are? Two ways. Fire and clouds. Right? Isn't that amazing? Just fire and clouds. This idea that just this consuming fire... And this ever-presence, this expansive, almost virtually unknowable idea of a cloud. And so we see this. We see that as God's glory is displayed, we see it leading God's people in Exodus. We see that it surrounds God as he unveils himself in places like Isaiah and Revelation. In Daniel, speaking of Jesus' return, it says that he comes on what? Clouds of glory. Clouds of glory. Have you ever just, you've been on a plane and you just, like since you were a kid, have you ever you just you haven't figured out why clouds from a plane are just so epic, right? Like you fl- remember the first time you flew through them and you actually thought clouds had like mass, right? And you're like a kid who like flew at a young age. You're like looking out. And you're like, well, here comes oh the clouds, right? You thought you were gonna hit something, right? It's just everywhere, right? But we still we get above the clouds and we look from a plane. We just love that sight, don't we? It's just amazing, and it's really hard to comprehend. It's just, these things are amazing. It says Jesus is going to come on the clouds of glory. And so this is what's going to take place. We're going to see that in in a few moments. And so what you need to, again, know is that Jesus is God. The Godhead's glory is about to be put on display. And, and before I even get any further, here's the idea. Everyone want, you want the end of the sermon right here? I'm just going to give it to you up front, okay? So you got somewhere to be? I'm just going to give it to you right now. If you remember nothing else, here it is. Before we embark on this two-part study, God is good and Satan is sick. That's it, okay? I like alliterations. It's cute. It's easy to remember, yeah? God is good. Satan is sick. And what you're going to see is that God is very good. Satan is very sick. And then we'll see that God is good again. That's what this study is going to entail. So what you're going to see is creator God now in all his splendor and all his glory stretch out. And so it says this, it says that his robe became white and glistening 
And in the other accounts of this, from the other synoptic gospels, we learn, I think it's in Matthew's account, we learn that Jesus' face shone like the sun. You ever tried looking at the sun? You did when you were a kid. Mom told you not to. Did it anyway, especially the guys, okay? Mom's like, don't look at it. Like, why? Oh, I'll check again tomorrow, see if it's just as bright, right? That Jesus' face was like the sun. That's why there's going to be no sun in the new world, in the new life. There's just going to be Jesus. His face shone, it shined like the sun. So he's got a robe now that's like flashes of lightning, like the most epic lightning you've ever seen on steroids. And his face is like the sun. So you've got sun and lightning going on. Jesus' glory, God's glory is now being put on display This is a good God. This is creator God. This is creator Jesus on display on the mountain with his inner circle. And it says, and behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. This is epic. So now you've got three, you've got two old dudes coming to talk with Jesus, likely hovering above the ground. Okay. You can just imagine you're a disciple. This guy's seen some freaky things and it just keeps getting crazier. This is before balloons. They just never seen people hover before. Okay. And so Moses and Elijah come. And what's the theological unpacking of that? What do those two represent? Moses and the law. Elijah and the prophets. It's the whole Old Testament show up to talk to Jesus. The law and the prophets. Coming to show that Jesus fulfills both. Jesus is the greatest prophet. He fulfilled the law, as the Bible tells us. And so the, the, the representation of the law and the prophets show up. And there's another layer to this as well. Moses represents all those that died an earthly death and were taken up to glory in heaven. Elijah represents those that never saw an earthly death. They were swept up and taken to glory in heaven. So one represents those of us that will see an earthly death. The other represents those that will be raptured before an earthly death. And then those two components now sit and they talk with Jesus who consummates the whole thing. And they come to talk with Jesus and, and, and we get a hint of what they talk about. Cause don't you want to know, right? I wish I was there. Wish I was there. They actually tell us, it says this. It says who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The law and the prophets show up and all they want to talk about is the cross. Isn't that amazing? The whole Old Testament points forward to the cross. And so the whole Old Testament shows up and all they want to do is talk about the cross. And you can imagine, and this is speculation, but imagine what they're saying. They're probably a lot smarter than me. They are, guaranteed, right? But they've got, they've got to come down. They're like, Jesus, it's been made known to us what's going to happen. Are you ready? Imagine Moses being like, Jesus, are you ready for this? I mean, we, 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 we prophesied and, and we, I, I, we slaughtered lambs. And, but now we know why, fully, truly, what's going to take place. Are you ready for this? And we know that even in the garden, Jesus struggled. He struggled. He says, hey, God, if there's another way, take this cup from me. So I imagine even this conversation, he's like, look, it's going to be bad. But it's God's will. I trust dad. And so the law and the prophets come and they're talking with Jesus about the cross. And, and heck, even beyond that, in Revelation, we see that in the throne room right now, today, Sunday night, right now, 2014, right now, there's a lamb in the throne room with the marks as though it was slain. Even in heaven today, there's a remembrance of the cross. That's why Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. That's why Zach and I end every sermon Sunday night at the crucifixion before communion. It's the center of all history. It's what the Old Testament was looking forward to. It's what the New Testament speaks of and remembers. But it's not where it ends. It's not where it ends. It ends in glory. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, look, I just told you. I just told you that I'm headed to the cross. 
but now I'm going to show you what comes after. And so the disciples see a cross, they see the bloody death of their Messiah. And Jesus then takes them up a hill and says, look, but then after. Death will not hold me. And we know that the Bible says that we will receive a body like Jesus' glorified body. And so he's showing the disciples and the disciples would just get slaughtered after Jesus left, by the way. Only one would survive martyrdom and he was attempted to be boiled alive. So he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Death was coming, but he says the cross is not the end of the store. It's not the end of the gospel. It's the crux. It's the middle. All of this, everything, your life, my life, atheist's life, everyone's life ends with the glory of Jesus. Regardless of how you deal with him now, the whole thing will be consummated in the glory of Jesus. And so he stretches out. And it's a miracle. And you need to know what miracles are intended to do in the Bible. And so you see different miracles as Jesus goes through his ministry, yes? Right? Like, not magician stuff, like actual bona fide miracles. Can you think of one? People, I did not come to church to engage. I'm going to sit here and listen, because that's what I've been taught to do. What are some miracles? Some of you freaked out right now. You can talk in church. It's okay. Water into wine. Right? Bible says wine's a sign of God's blessing. Don't get drunk on it. Sign of God's blessing. Jeff? Apart from that epic bow tie. That's a miracle. (laughs) What's a miracle? Absolutely. Healing from the dead. Raising people from the dead. What else? Walking on water. Was that a miracle? Okay. Dude, surf without a board for crying out loud. Okay. Miracles are intended not to show that nature can be inverted for a split second. It's to actually show that nature, fractured creation can be restored for a brief moment. So a miracle is not something freaky. A miracle is showing you how it should have been, how it should be, and how it will be again. And so when Jesus feeds all 5,000, which is really about 20,000 given families, they only counted the men back then. He says, look, it used to be, it should be, it will be at some point that no one goes hungry. That no one goes hungry. That water, which is just a sustenance for life, he turns it into wine and just says, look, you will be sustained by the blessing of God. He walks on water. He says, look, I'm the creator of water. By the way, humans, you guys haven't created anything. I'm an artist. I create all the time. No, you assemble stuff that was created. We are assemblers of things. Jesus created in raw format. There wasn't even heaven when he began creating. There was just God. So he says, look, I created water. I can walk on it. He says, look, when earth is perfect as it was, as it should be, as it will be again, creator God gets to do whatever he wants. No one goes hungry. Everyone is fed. Everyone is blessed. And so miracles just for a brief moment actually restore creation. They don't bend the laws of nature. We're living upside down in a fractured, sinful world. For a brief second, miracles turn everything back right side up. And it's a glimpse into heaven. And so when Jesus unveils himself, it's not some freakish miracle, though it is a miracle in and of itself. What he's doing is saying, look, let me show you how it actually is. And so for a moment, he's no longer confined in the incarnation. And it's a parallel miracle, because check this out. You got to go another layer with me on this, okay? These are the things I think about on the motorcycle all week. It's a parallel miracle. Because not only is it a miracle that reveals who Jesus really is, how it really actually is, no denying, he can't, but I think he's just a normal guy. Right? Lightning robe, right? Sun face. It's like, this is actually how it is. But it also puts a temporary pause on an existing miracle, which is what? God be incarnate. And so when we talk about this Christmas miracle, not as much are we talking about the virgin birth, though that was a miracle in and of itself. We're talking about creator God before heaven and earth, before angels and humans, before mountains, land, creatures, all of that come as tiny little baby. 
that for 33 years of roughly, Jesus allowed himself to be confined in the incarnation as a miracle. Paralleled with him then stretching out, like in his transformer moment, right? Stretching out his creator God, showing his glory, unparalleled, unsurpassed, indescribable. And so Jesus' glory is on full display in this moment. And the whole Old Testament shows up to confer and to talk about the impending cross, God's redemptive plan through Jesus. So it's an epic scene. And it says this, after it says that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, verse 32 says, but Peter, I love Peter, love Peter. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were putting, sorry, parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. I love Peter. Just stating the obvious. Jesus, this is is great. Love it. So excited to be here right? I love Peter. Such a goofball, like every single person in this room right now. All right. So it is good for us to be here. He's even more excited than us, by the way. As a Jew, are you kidding me? Like he traded baseball cards with these guys and they just showed up. It's like, Moses is here. I have his rookie card. Is that Elijah? (laughs) Right? As a Jew, this is it. This is the best thing that's ever happened. We got the Old Testament and the Messiah. So what does he say? Let's hang out. Let's stay. Let's, nothing changes. I'm not going back down that mountain. I want to hang out here. He says this. He says, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Let's hang out. Right? Let's pop some tents. One for you. One for Moses. One for Elijah. This is it, man. This is like for the Jew. This is like the dream team. He's like, look, the six of us can just chill for the rest of life. Forget everyone else. This is amazing. The Bible says he did not know what he was talking about. He did not know what he just did. Peter just committed a grievous sin. Peter just said, Jesus is just one more guy. Said, look, he's the lawgiver rather than the life giver giver. Look, he's another word from God rather than the word of God. Which is the Muslim heresy. Muslims believe in Jesus. You know what? Of course they do. Great prophet, that Jesus. It's not a disbelief in Jesus. Peter was on the verge of the exact same heresy. In fact, he committed, he said, Look, we got the law. We got the prophets. Let's just stick Jesus right in there too. We do the same thing. I got my work. I got my family. We'll just stick Jesus in there too. You attach Jesus to your life rather than submit to him as the Lord of life. I got work Monday through Friday. We got church on Sunday. We got parties on Friday night, Saturday. We got, you just, you just add them. Peter says, look, we got, oh, this is epic. This is like Bible study, right? We got prophet and just throw Jesus in the middle. We're all on equal footing. Oh, check out what happens. While he was saying this, by the way, it wasn't a long sentence either, right? It was probably clear skies. It's like, hey, let's just set up three. Here it comes. Oh, God's about to show up. Oh, God was already there. Yeah, Jesus and dwelt with the Holy Spirit and check it out, here comes the Father. Oh, now you're gonna have this massive picture of the Trinity on top of this mountain. As someone says, Jesus is just another guy in sequence. Here comes this cloud. Here comes the glory of God. Here comes God the Father. It says, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. It consumed the whole mountain. You've seen this, yes? You've seen the mountain that's consumed on the top with that cloud? 
Imagine that. Keep in mind, there's still a bunch of disciples and a crowd brewing down and they see this cloud come in. Like, oh, I bet it was Peter, right? And they're like, that wily dude, right? And they're like, oh, look at that, right? Here comes the cloud. And they feared. Look, in this instance, God's glory was not exactly fun. It wasn't exactly fun to be in God's presence at this moment. That's what sin does. It makes you fear. If truly regenerate by the Holy Spirit, look, you're going to sin, but you know you're regenerate when you, you have this, this desperate and, and just humble fear before the glory of God for what you've done because you actually realize that you just committed cosmic treason of which for one offense, you should be put to death. I've said this time and time again. The Bible should go Genesis 1, 2, 3, Revelation 19. That's how the Bible should read. You sinned, ah, over, whole thing. Jesus, white horse, slaughters, and just forget it. One sin separates you from God. If you've never committed one sin, get up and leave right now. You don't belong here. One sin. Here comes the glory of God. And it's not necessarily fun. I think I got, grabbed something from Guzik on this. David Guzik, pastor up at Santa Barbara, says, being in the presence of God's glory in this way was not really a pleasant experience. Especially because Peter had just sinned and needed correcting. Sometimes the glory of God is shown in his correction of us. Sometimes the glory of God is shown in his correction of us. And so when Christians turn from their wicked ways, when they repent of their sin, they display the glory of God. When you repent, you display God's glory, which which comes and shakes creation at its core. Because we as regenerate Christians, we know our creator and it shakes you. And so it wasn't fun at this point, but it was necessary. So it says, and the cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, and it says, and a voice came out of the cloud saying this, you try to put them on equal footing, know this. As, as great, as, as amazing as Moses and Elijah were and the other heroes and failures of the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is my beloved son. Peter, no. Christian tonight, no. You don't just simply add Jesus to your repertoire. You don't just simply add a church service here and there before a holy God. I put church here is no indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You understand your creator. No, God, the father says, this is my beloved son. He says this, hear him because God knows there are a lot of voices and he knew at some point YouTube would be invented, right? He's like, we're going to do that whole Facebook phase. He knew it. Then now, until Jesus comes back, lots of voices, lots of voices, lots of opinions about God, lots of speculation, very little revelation, which can always be tested by the word. He says, look, there's going to be lots of speculation about who Jesus is, who he wasn't. Do you know that the first heresy against Jesus was not that he wasn't God? It's that he wasn't fully man. We always think that just the heresy was just, oh, he's not God. No, they understood him to be. I said, but, but clearly, but it, he was really, but he couldn't be just man. Look, no, 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 no God could actually come and, and be subject to the incarnation. No, no God could actually come and truly know what you're going through. Tempted in every way yet without sin. No God could really ultimately know pain and suffering because they're God. The first heresy that was on the offense against Christ was not that he wasn't God. It said he was actually man, fully God, fully man. How does that work? Stretches the brain. Let's ask him when we get there, right? 
We, may, we can understand it truly, but we don't necessarily understand it fully. And so he says, hear him. My question for you is, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? Do you cling to the words of Christ? Do you cling to God's word? Do you get excited about reading his words, thinking about his words on your way into work, thinking about scripture while you're at work, while you're being diligent, thinking about who Jesus was, how he did ministry, how he impacted lives. Does that excite you? Does that excite you? Because God shows up and says, look, listen to him. It doesn't mean that there aren't other people. We know this. We know that God sends preachers. We know that God sends pastors, prophets. He sends disciples. He sends deacons and elders. He sets up leadership structure, layers of authority, but ultimately they all subject themselves to Jesus. At the head of every org chart of every Christian church in America is Jesus Christ. Top of the org chart, hear him. If anyone in your life is in contradiction of him, they're in the wrong. No one has ultimate authority on this earth but Jesus. God says, hear him. Certainly pastors that are under, in submission to Jesus. Certainly deacons and elders and parents and public officials, certainly. But we always have the absolute truth of Jesus who came in the fullness of truth and grace. And so God says, hear him. Are you listening to him? Are you tapping in via prayer? Are you meditating on his word? People are like, I'm not one of those Bible thumpers that quotes, just quotes the Bible. Oh, it's good enough for Jesus, not good enough for you. To just throw Deuteronomy, to just throw scripture. He didn't even have the New Testament to quote. He had memorized the Old Testament. Well, I don't really, I don't get too legalistic about that, right? Christian, you bear his name. Begin to bear his ministry. So it says, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of the things they had seen. And so this is actually... The, the section, both what we just read and what we're going to go into, that inspired Raphael, the artist. You know Raphael? Named after the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, right? And so Raphael, I think you got that wrong, Pastor. Okay. This actually inspired his final painting. Did you know that? The Transfiguration and the Boy Afflicted by a Demon. This inspired his final painting. You can look it up. If I had prepped better, I would have just pulled it up right now. Didn't happen. Okay. You can see that this scene, God and Jesus on display in full glory for a brief moment while the crowd below was dealing with man's misery. And Jesus now comes back into the incarnation, resubmitted himself to the incarnation, and he heads right back down to ministry, which is miserable at times. Miserable at times. And so this scene now unfolds. Verse 37, it says, Now it happened on the next day. Now they come back down this mountain. When they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. They'd been stirring all night. They saw the cloud. They ran over. Jesus is up to something again. Right? Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, Rabbi, I implore you, Look on my son. Look on my son, for he is my only child. You need cultural context for this. You need cultural context for this. My only son. It's a detail that we fly right by, but it meant everything in that time. It meant everything in that time. Three main reasons. Spiritually, spiritually, financially, and in terms of legacy. Spiritually, children in that day, and in some cultures still today, were utterly disregarded as weak. In fact, if they had deformities, handicaps, they were discarded, killed, murdered. Children were disregarded 
as subhumans. God's people, however, had a different perspective. God's people who studied and believed the scriptures, as it says, I believe in Psalm 127, 3, that children are a blessing and a gift from God. So God's people saw kids very differently. Very differently. And so spiritually, this was this man's gift from God. And in terms of children, it was his only one. Doesn't mean that he wasn't blessed. It doesn't mean that God didn't give him gifts. But he believed, if he believed in his heart, that this was a gift from God, spiritually had much significance that this was his only child. Financially, back then, of course, no shocker, most people lived rural, okay? We're the exact opposite today. Most people live urban, city centers. In fact, demographers say by 2030, upwards of 60% of the entire world 60% will live in cities and urban centers as opposed to rural. You saw as Jesus went through his ministry, most of the towns that he visited were 100, 200 people. I've traveled all over Israel. That's one of the things that will shock you. Be like, here's the city where Jesus went. It's like four bricks in a corner. You're just like, where? This is Peter's house. You know how big Peter's house is? It's like this big. I've been there. It's like a little circle. It looks like like a porta john Right? Just tiny little, just tiny little, just little rural cities everywhere. Today's the exact opposite. With urban sprawl, suburbs, our cities are massive. And again, by 2030, they project some 60% of people will live in urban centers. And so what this meant is that you lived and worked in very tight communities. And your workforce was incredibly limited. And in a rural community, you, per, you partook in a profession like fishing or carpentry. And, and you didn't double up on professions. You didn't need four carpenters in one city. You needed a small family business that fulfilled a need, whether it was farming, fishing, carpentry, metalwork, stonework, whatever it was. And so financially, a child was imperative because they would contribute to the family business. They were hands, right? If you notice that kids, where are the parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Okay, all the people with their hands up know exactly what I'm about to say. Kids bring in nothing. You notice that? Ethan just turned five. I don't know why he doesn't have a job yet. Bills are not getting any smaller. In that day, the children contributed financially to the family business. We're the exact opposite today. Kids, and I'm getting to the age now where I can look at the young people and like start scorning you. I'm like, oh, I don't even know who you are anymore, right? I mean, that weird between like the adults, like you have no clue either. What are you talking about? But and I start to look at people, oh, twenties. Oh my gosh, right? You contribute nothing. You suck everything out of your parents. You don't pay taxes. You don't bring in income, and when you do, use it to get the latest iPhone or something. You're not like, how much is the mortgage this month? Let me help with that. It's awful. California's expensive, Dad. Here's my paycheck. Right? You're like, I earned this. Right? You contribute nothing, but kids back then contributed a lot. Contributed a lot. On top of that, infant mortality rate was severe. Here's some stats from the first century, if you can believe them. If not, doesn't matter to me. About half of children live to be Ethan's age, their fifth birthday. Half. Half. 100 kids by 550. In fact, they wouldn't even name babies for a week or two because it would create too much of an emotional connection to a child that was very likely to die. We, uh, we, pick, we pick names before we're married, Right? Just, I did, no joke, it sounds weird. Most guys don't do this. I, I met Carissa, I'm like, hi, my name's Mark. You need to know what our first son's name is gonna be. <laughs> it's gonna be Ethan David, see? It happened, it's true. Carissa can attest to it. She's like, it was weird. He even had a rugby jersey for him already, <laughs> which I think he's wearing tonight, right? Like, right? About half of children live to their fifth birthday. Less than 40% of people lived to be 20. 
less than 40% of people would live to be 20. Let me break it down. If you as a parent wanted to have two adult children in your life, of drinking age or above in America, if you wanted two, let's say you wanted a boy and a girl, you had to have five kids and bury three of them in the first century. You'd have five kids and bury three of them to get two past 20. So that you can just begin to see that this, this, is, this is what this father is dealing with. And so spiritually, it was a gift. Financially, this child was an asset, <clears throat> provided retirement. There was no social security. There was no Medicare, Medicaid. There was no retirement planning, retirement communities. There was kids. I say we go back to that, right? Breed them now, breed them well, right? And then leech off them because they leached off you for 20 years. You change their diapers, they get to change yours. There's an imagery for you. Circle of life. It's like a Lion King moment, right? And then in terms of legacy, the Bible places heavy emphasis. The Bible places heavy emphasis on legacy and lineage, especially in God's people. Heavy emphasis. My mother's maiden name is Johnson. Where did that come from? That at some point was John's son. Okay. Names were attached not only to your family business at times, but also your father, your lineage, your legacy, Mickelson, Michelson, Michelson, Johnson, John's son. You think we just came up with random last names, didn't you? No. They were a part of the legacy. And so this man with this little boy was troubled spiritually, financially, and in terms of his legacy. And this account that we're going to read is actually the shortest in the synoptic gospels. I I believe because Luke said that Luke knew that the other gospels had covered a lot of details. I do. You don't have to subscribe to it. I do. He was an investigator. He was a doctor, very smart man, commissioned to, to write about the life and work and ministry of Jesus. So he knew the other texts, he knew, which was, and Luke was written last, right? He knew that the other details had been covered, he studied it. And so it's a short one, but if you want to do in your own studies, and I actually would just, I I would ask you to do this. Take a look at Matthew 17 and Mark 9. Take a look at Matthew 17 and Mark 9 in your own studies. You can study on your own, did you know that? Anyone, you guys know that? Three-fourths of you don't believe me. I'm not, I don't think so, right? It's true, you can, um, trust me. You might as well do it. You do it now while you can. Who knows? It's America, right? So, all right, at some point, Zach and Rob and myself and Brett, we're all going to be in prison, so it doesn't matter. So, you're going to have to learn to read on your own. That's depressing. It's the most brief. Let's read through it, and then we'll talk about a couple other details. It says this, and it says, So he is my only child, and behold, a spirit, that's a demon, seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. He's taking on the manifestation of what would be the equivalent of an epileptic seizure. He says he foams at the mouth. It departs from him with great difficulty. It doesn't just let him go. We took a look at Legion. We took a look at what could have been thousands of demons that left the man. This one demon does not leave nearly as quietly He throws this little boy around. God is good and Satan is sick. He says, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Bruising him. We know other details from the other synoptics. We know that this demon would throw this little boy, which the other synoptic says, he had this demon from childhood and the word translated really kind of means since like almost infancy. This demon saw this kid and said, He's my, I'm going after that one. Couple weeks, maybe a couple months, maybe a year or two in. And he went at this kid and he did not relent. Demons are sick, fallen angels. Intent, hell bent on taking creation down with them. They can't stand that we bear the image of God. So he goes after this little boy and he afflicts him his whole life at this point we see that this demon would throw this boy into fire. This isn't, just a, this isn't just a good story. This is historicity. This is what demons do. 
God is good and all his glory and demons and Satan are sick. They are insane, clinically insane. They do the same thing. They continue to contend with God thinking the result will be different. They're insane. They're wounded creatures that cannot repent as we've studied in the past. They're backed into a corner and they're dangerous. And so when you start tapping into psychedelic drugs and you start playing with Wicca and and Ouija boards and whatever the latest, craziest, weird nonsense is, I'm just going to kind of tap in. I'm just, all these nonsense about, I just want to be spiritual, not really religious. Which spiritual side are you talking about? Because one side wants to bring life and restoration, the other death and destruction. You can't just tap into spirituality. You need to pick a team. He would throw this little boy into fire. He would throw him into water. A little boy, about the age of maybe elementary school. You think they had swim lessons back then? No. It says that this boy at times would be rendered mute. So sometimes when he would throw him into the fire, he couldn't even scream for help. The poor little kid had to crawl out himself. Thrown into the water. This kid was marred. His skin was disfigured. Cuts, scrapes. This kid was beat up for years by this demon. They're sick. Beat up intently. And sometimes he couldn't even cry out for dad. And his parents, it starts to break you. To all the young people, read this again. Read this again when you've got kids. When you've snuggled with one and put them to sleep. And you imagine that this actually happened, that demons actually want this to happen. They can still make this happen. It says he's been like this since infancy. And so I just, this is me just thinking about this. Just imagine what this father went through. Imagine what this father went through. Parents, you you start to get it. You're, You're sleeping by this boy's bed every night. And it would go in and out. You didn't know when it would attack and when it wouldn't. And it would throw your child around. You imagine the dad grabbing the kid in the middle of a fit and just squeezing and crying and praying. Stop. Just stop. He's squeezing. He'd come and find his, his kid soaking wet, gasping for air, maybe half passed out on the lakeshore, bring him back in. His dad was scared every time he'd go to work. We don't know if the dad was widowed. We don't know if there was a mother. If he had to go to work, I imagine he either brought his kid with or he didn't work far from home. Terrorized, afflicted by this demon. This demon beat up on this kid. Beat up on this kid. And it says this. It says that the spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him and foams at the mouth. It departs him with great difficulty, so bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Why? It, said this, it says this in the first verse of the chapter. It says, then he, Jesus, called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Jesus has given them all authority. Jesus has given Christians, even today, under the name and banner and fame of Jesus Christ, all authority over demons. Not in your name, not in learning theirs, but in declaring Jesus' name. And so he's given all authority and yet the disciples couldn't cast this one out. Two reasons. In Ephesians 6, we see that there's rank structure. We know that some demons are more powerful than the others. Lucifer, who became Satan, is the highest ranking official in the demonic rank. The highest. And as we're going to see again, we're going to see next week. Look, don't make this mistake of putting it the battlefield with Satan against Jesus. It's not the case. If you want the opposing equal of Satan, his name is the archangel Michael. Jesus is the king that sits above all creation, angels, demons, humans, earth, heaven, everything. Everything. And so we see that there's different ranks. And so this demon very well could have been one of the more powerful demons, whipping it out on a boy. We also see in the other synoptic uh, pictures of this, we see that Jesus says it was due to their lack of prayer and fasting. It's not because praying and fasting makes you more holy or makes you able to more appropriately command demons. It's that it, you begin to remove yourself from the, the power of God. And so here's the big idea. Here's what you need to know. Every time you pray, if when you do fast, it's an act of war. 
in the spiritual realm, when you pray, it's an act of war. Some of you don't like praying. Have you ever thought of it as an act of war? And a lot of times we set up the enemies to be other humans, don't we? The Muslims are our enemy. No, the Bible says we're all captives. That's why Jesus says, I come to set the captives free. We all live behind enemy lines. It says that the authority was granted to Satan to run earth. Do you know that? He runs earth. We're all behind enemy lines, all captives. When you start getting uppity about non-Christians and atheists and you start fighting with them and declaring them the enemy, you're just shooting other captives. The enemy is Satan and demons. That's who Jesus came to defeat. And he did. And so we see that, that they were slowly removing themselves from the power of God and that this was probably a stubborn demon. And they couldn't. The disciples couldn't. And now creator Jesus coming down from the mountain after displaying all his glory, all the good of God, says, then Jesus answered him, said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Some of you are like, that's a little, it's a little harsh, Jesus. Poor dad, it's a little harsh. But in the other synoptic, it says that this man cried out and said, Lord, help my unbelief. He didn't believe. And so when Jesus says faithless and perverse generation, it says the type of people that will drag family and friends to Jesus, but lack faith themselves. So he says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. And that rings true today. If you got another translation, it may say twisted. Have you ever noticed that we're twisted? Have you ever noticed that? The porn culture, sex trafficking culture, domestic abuse, violence, subjugation of people, slavery. You notice we're a twisted culture. Jesus coming down off this mountain where he, 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 he availed himself to his divine glory comes back down and says, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Do you ever feel like that? Jesus did. Fully human. He understands what it's like to long for the next world, to long for completion and perfection in heaven. Do you ever feel like that? I do. If you don't, just start, go get a video on human trafficking, on the sex trade. By the way, every time you download a porn flick, you're contributing to that. Every time you do it, no, I watch the free clips on YouTube. Every single one of those taps through to an advertiser network and they say, you're building good content. I'm gonna pay you for that. Even the free clips, gentlemen. Yep. Yeah, you fund sex trafficking. For 17 years, I funded sex trafficking. It's a twisted generation we live in. Twisted and perverse. Jesus says, you're faithless, specifically to this man because he was he says, bring your son here. Creator God says, look, bring the kid. Bring the kid to me. Dad, bring him here. Christian, bring your affliction to me. Look, bring him here. Demons, sin, shame, history, porn addiction. Bring it to me. He says, and he was still coming. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked him. Just like he rebuked the wind and the waves. He commands physical creation and he commands spiritual creation. He says, stop. Jesus says, stop. The affliction, stop. Demons, stop. Sin in your life, stop. Bring it to me, stop. Get to me, stop. I'll come to you. It says, and Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit healed the child because Satan is sick, but God is good. Healed the child and gave him back to his father. And then just the first part of verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. At the majesty of God. And so I would implore you tonight to be amazed at the majesty of God as we go into this time of worship that this creator and all his glory would enter creation. And I don't say that flippantly. That the God that could stretch out on a mountain whose face was like the sun, whose robe was like a lightning would allow himself to be confined to the miracle of life in a little baby so that he could live the life that you and I were supposed to live, but we couldn't. Die the death that you and I deserved and he didn't. And so I just implore us again that the creator would enter creation, that we would be amazed that God would become a baby this Christmas season, that we would be amazed at the majesty of God and that Christ, that God 
would be crucified. And the Bible says that he became sin. Gentlemen, he became every click. He became every time you clicked. Ladies, the stats are rising for you too. You're falling prey to the same disease. Every sin, every lie, every time you've cheated, every time you've stolen, every time Jesus says, look, I didn't come to symbolize it or be a mere representation of it. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin. And so all the sin was put on Jesus on the cross and the wrath of God was poured out on him and God is no longer angry with those who are in Christ. And so that we would all tonight as we go to worship the true living king who's on a throne right now reigning over all of creation, both physical and spiritual, that we would go into a time of worship in awe of the majesty of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we do. I just pray that that would not just be a quippy way to end a sermon, but that would be real. That would be legit in the hearts of your people. That we would just be amazed that creator God entered creation on our behalf to live the life that we should have, to die the death that we deserved to have the wrath of almighty God poured out on you on the cross so that God, you would no longer be angry with those who are in Christ, that you do not see us. You don't see our afflictions. You don't see our shame. You don't see our past. You see Christ in us. And so I pray we would be in awe of that majesty tonight before the one true living King, commander of all creation. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen.